This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Saladin Ambar, who's the author this time round of Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. And this was published by Oxford University Press, I believe, in 2022. Um, And like so much of Saladin's other works, it's incredibly well-written, compelling, Um, and just a joy to read, and really fascinating. I've always been interested in the concept of friendship, particularly given how the ancients have posited that it's so important to the polity. Um, And political friendship is what Aristotle and Socrates talk about. And you're talking about the role of friendship in our understanding of race in the United States and white supremacy and how modeling interracial friendship may be important for us to understand where we are as a culture. Um, But I'm going to ask Saladin first to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project as opposed to his other projects. Well, Lily, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to see you and be, uh, be with you on these podcasts over the years. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. And I do value your friendship. So, so thank you. Uh, I am an American political development person within uh, political science. I focus on the presidency and governorships. But I also write a bit about race, probably more than a bit. And uh, this project arose out of uh, an article that I was working on. Uh, that eventually was published with the Journal of Race and Ethnic Politics um, on W.E.B. Du Bois and his friendship and intellectual relationship with William James, his Harvard graduate professor. Uh, That article um, was uh, in the works and it was workshopped out at the University of Oregon where uh, my good friend and former uh, dissertation advisor Dan Titchener suggested, along with others who attended that workshop, that that article be turned into a book, that there were other great examples of intellectual relationships that had important democratic implications. And I thought about it and uh, considered what that would look like historically. And so it began the project uh, of Stars and Shadows. And and Stars and Shadows, you, you start off talking about, you know, again, how we want to think about the role of democracy and 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 human relations within it, and um, and you are an expert on the founding period and what a lot of the framers had to say, um, and you you note Madison's commitment to the fact that the expansive republic was going to help modulate 
problems. Um, but how does friendship then fit into a republic of 330 million people that is across a vast expanse of land? Well, you know, one of my great graduate professors, the late Wilson Carey McWilliams, who's revered by his former students, many of them, it's fair to say, uh, wrote really um, eloquently about friendship. And he, he was somewhat um, frustrated, I think might be the good word to say about, about Madison. And a lot of the Enlightenment theories that sought to scientifically structure democratic mores, or at least um, uh, root out negative impulses of human beings uh, as best they can, uh, by you know creating a, a balanced system, a, a Newtonian system, if you will, where uh, checks and balances and an expansive government over vast territory uh, that was you know compound in nature, etc. All of those things would serve as bulwarks against you know the uh, less virtuous aspects found within human nature. But uh, Madison also understood that there had to be a certain kind of affection for one's government and that th those affections uh, could be cultivated. But he didn't really dig into how that would be. And I think this is where the ancients, as you suggest, had something to say about this. Uh, and, and I think uh, in McWilliams' own work and the work of other writers, I reference uh, Daniel S. Allen and her work on friendship, uh, and Paul Gilroy, uh, very uh, significant uh, contemporary African, uh, or not African-American, but I, <laughs> a black Brit, <laughs> um, had to say, I don't know what the correct parlance is, Afro-Brit, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Paul Gilroy's work on the politics of conviviality speak to the ways in which you don't really have a multiracial democratic society without affections that work horizontally as well as vertically. Can't just be uh, a connection and a, a set of affections to one's government. There had to be bonds between and amongst citizens. And I think that uh, has always been the case, but I think you know many of your listeners will probably recognize that in, uh, as is the case in more recent times, when, when the bonds uh, of democratic life begin to fray, Certainly when our institutions begin to let us down, we have to go back to the blocking and tackling, if you will, of uh, democratic life, and that is friendship. Uh, and if we don't have that, then we really lose the base of what connects us as human beings, uh, the things that uh, you know, create something higher than oneself. And friendship right after you know, uh, familial life, romantic life, friendship is right there. Uh, that creates those bonds. And, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, how, how you sort of started to pick up the other, the other friendships, because you note you had this one that, that you sort of started out with, with regard to Du Bois. Um, but how did you move to sort of go backwards to Jefferson, um, who is so problematic in so many ways, um, and also then forward, obviously, to Obama um, and Biden. Um, and so you have you have also at the at the center of this this thesis about interracial friendships that are in public, because friendship is often something that we think about as a private relation um, that we do in private um, because it's it's 
it's intimate. It's, you know, it's connected to two, two people or a couple of people. Um, and it's not something that we necessarily sort of project um, a, as a public demonstration of a political engagement. Um, so I would ask you, those are a number of questions embedded there. Um, but I would first like to talk to you about, you know, this concept of friendship and conviviality. Great. Well, you know, to begin with, uh, I started in my mind with that wonderful story, probably told best by Edmund Morris and Theodore Rex about the failed friendship, political relationship between Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington. I think we all have heard uh, bits and pieces about the infamous dinner that he had at the White House that really threatened uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, standing, uh, certainly within um, Southern circles, uh, and really dismayed him uh, because uh, Washington's um, uh, presence at that White House dinner uh, caused such a, uh, a disruption particularly in the South, where all kinds of racist attitudes uh, came out, not only against Washington, but frankly, more so against Roosevelt for hosting this social engagement with a black man and with his wife present. But I I, I mentioned that that story uh, in passing because it was a failure. I go back to uh, first Abraham Lincoln and uh, his more successful three meetings with Frederick Douglass in the White House. And naturally, you begin to ask yourself the question, what was uh, really the first instance in which a dynamic public figure of consequence in the United States engaged across racial lines with someone that had meaning for the republic? And you really have to go back to the kind of uh, failed uh, relationship uh, and connection between Benjamin Banneker, a free black man within Maryland, And then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, whom uh, Banneker reaches out to uh, by writing him a letter, uh, asking him in so many words to revisit his uh, proper view of human nature, as extolled in the Declaration, all men are created equal. Uh, And and why, therefore, Jefferson nevertheless supports the, the evil institution of slavery. Now, that failed relationship, uh, one in which Jefferson doesn't quite forthrightly address Banneker's concerns, but nevertheless uh, gives him a kind of a proverbial pat on the back and supports uh, his scientific work and suggests that maybe in someday in the future, uh, when things are uh, better situated, um, the races uh, could be on a better standing uh, with each other. But that that really, to my mind, is the first instance of an exchange, a public exchange between uh, a founding member of the republic and someone of color that had democratic implications. It's because Jefferson cannot leave uh, his views, as as expounded upon in notes uh, on Virginia, in which he holds blacks racially inferior. It's because he cannot leave those views that we don't get a kind of cross-racial, transracial friendship, uh, or at the very least, uh, social interaction of, uh, of, of a public nature between the two men. Jefferson tries, uh, when he sounds off at the end of the letter with that you know, now famous um, uh, concluding uh, you know, uh, language, uh, you're a humble, obedient servant, Thomas Jefferson. 
He also refers to Banneker as one of his brethren. And it's those two lines, calling Banneker one of his brethren, uh, as well as calling him his, uh, Jefferson calling himself your humble, obedient servant, that causes political problems for Jefferson. Why? Because he's suggesting friendship, social connection between blacks and whites is possible. And that is a problem. And I think the reason why, to go back to the second part of your question, I think the, the, what's, what was of significance to me in writing this book and doing the research was that you begin to see over and over again that, yes, private friendships among the races have always been possible in American life. It's not like we had to wait for Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass to become friends in the White House for blacks and whites to develop friendship uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere. But what, it did, what that episode did suggest was that public figures, renowned, powerful whites, frankly, uh, and in particular white men, who uh, demonstrated public support for the idea of uh, social equality, uh, might have the ability to carry the day in terms of where the country was headed democratically, that yes, if blacks and whites were social equals, then uh, ipso facto, they could become political equals. And that was always uh, part of the challenge in American life. And I think that's why uh, I was drawn to the idea of friendship as not just a private kind of commodity, but something that had public consequences um, and meaning in a multiracial democracy. And in terms of the multiracial democracy that we have with all of its problems around that particular issue, um, we do have sort of notions of friendship. Um, and I would love for you to sort of explain just a little bit more, I guess, fully um, what it is that we're really talking about. You talk about the public nature of the engagement between Banneker and Jefferson, um, and, you know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by in this discussion of friendship is not necessarily interracial, but um, across gender, that, you know, relationships between men and women that are friendships that are not in any way romantic seems to also be somewhat novel these days. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that that could almost be another book. And maybe there's someone listening out there right now who would be willing to take up that sword. Uh, I think you're 100% you're, uh, on the mark. Look, when um, Ralph Ellison, the famed black novelist, mid-20th century America, author of uh, Invisible Man, when he uh, speaks with Shirley Jackson uh, through correspondence, he, he writes... Uh, to her through her husband, Stanley Hyman, the famed literary critic. Uh, Ellison can't really correspond with another man's wife. And that says something about mid-20th century and perhaps even early 20th, 21st century values with respect to gendered relations and institutions like marriage and all they're uh, purported to mean and what the boundaries are. I think that's an important moment there. Uh, Ellison and, and Hyman have an intellectual uh, as well as personal uh, relationship uh, bound by real uh, admiration and friendship. Uh, but, you know, they have to kind of play their roles. Shirley has to be the dutiful wife to Stanley and Ralph has to be the respectful friend. And so that's important, I think, as well. 
uh, to be sure. Uh, we see this play out throughout uh, American history and in these connections, uh, undoubtedly. Frankly, it's not until really the 20th century where women begin to become significant public figures in their own right with respect to politics uh, that these conundrums are uh, addressed and or at the very least uh, arise uh, in a significant way. And uh, I think it's uh, it's valuable to point out to, uh, you know, what the parameters are. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, for me, when you look at these, uh, you know, the variety of these relationships and how class and race and gender all factor into them, certainly race is, um, you know, in my estimation, most significant primarily because of the uh, its rootedness in the founding of this country. But the other elements are are important. But what what is clear and becomes clear is that these friendships are indicators of, you know, trouble or maybe uh, improvements in the democracy. It's almost as if the, uh, you know, the warning light is coming on in your, in your car on the dashboard, you know, needs an oil change or, <laughs> or whatever the case may be. Uh, you can see that um, when it begins to work, as in the case of Lincoln and Douglas, uh, you know, there's a more hopeful kind of set of possibilities when you see when it doesn't quite work uh, in an episode that I don't really get into, but I, I reference, um, nevertheless, something like the relationship between Woodrow Wilson and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. You see how um, these fits and starts become emblematic of the period of time when multiracial friendship um, on a public level uh, among, you know, individuals of consequence, um, you know, begin to take hold or root, then it's a sign that the democracy is uh, rebounding or at the very least um, making headway. And when the periods are closed and that's not really quite possible, you see the republic uh, floundering. And so uh, that's how I see it. And certainly the gendered aspect is part of that story because it, you know, it tells, it points back to us who we are in so many words. And this connection between the Republic's strength and its floundering um, and sort of the the capacity for public figures to have or develop friendships across racial lines is one of the key features of your thesis. Um, and I and I think it's really important and really hard to sort of connect and get at. Can you sort of give us the frame for that connection? Because I think it's so important and you draw it out, but it's not something that most people would necessarily say, yeah, oh, that's obvious. Right. Well, you know, look, um, you know, I'm a political scientist and and, as you know, and um, many of us have uh, come across a very important article uh, on racial orders uh, by Roger Smith and Desmond King years ago now uh, that talks about certain periods in American political history uh, that were defining uh, rooted in a certain kind of uh, racial, um, you know, set of uh, consequences and, and relationships. And I think uh, I used uh, the idea of racial orders to periodize, if you will, these moments in American life where interracial friendship, fraternity, 
were closed among public figures. And that's really from the Jeffersonian period, the founding period until roughly the uh, late 19th century, where we begin to see a kind of indeterminate period emerging. And then uh, by mid 20th century, where we begin to see an opening of interracial friendship and its possibilities. And so uh, thinking as as I do about uh, his history and institutions and periods and why certain periods in, in American history matter, uh, I sought to uh, take that concept of American political development and apply friendship into or mix friendship into that uh, milieu of thought uh, and that was what came out to me, these uh, periods where, you know, in so many words, the door was shut. Uh, maybe Benjamin Banneker could have white friends in Maryland as a private citizen, and he certainly did. Most of his friends were white, but he could not make friends with Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely not. Uh, by the time we get to someone like a Dr. Martin Luther King and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in the mid 20th century, we begin to see that door opening. And of course, they could be friends in private, but now they could also be friends in public, as could, uh, you know, someone like a Jimmy Carter and an Andy Young and ultimately a Barack Obama and a Joe Biden. Uh, and suffice it to say, just as is the case in, um, you know, thinking about racial orders or other kinds of um, moments of political time, if I could borrow that concept from Stephen Skoranek, we see that these are not necessarily rigidly set um, parameters, but rather fluid ones with occasional exceptions and morphings. But by and large, I think uh, the framework holds where there's this closed period and more indeterminate moment probably best exemplified by Booker T. Washington and Teddy Roosevelt's friendship, and then a period that's uh, clearly open uh, or at least opening. And I think we could trace that back to the mid-20th century and, frankly, the dawn of the civil rights movement. And and so you have a collection of, of sort of quasi-friendships as well as more substantive friendships um, public and private ones. And I would love for you to sort of talk about how you collected these particular groupings. Um, and you do have, you know, you have, um, two, three groups that are women to women friendships. And most of the rest of them are men to men friendships with the oddity of Ralph Ellison, Shirley Jackson, and her husband. Um, and so what, what were you able to sort of see and glean from these particular relationships that was it really important that that helped guide your thinking on this? Well, I, I think for me, the key element was that the relationship had to have some political objective attached to it. You know, I can't tell you how many people over the course of my writing the book, you know, approached me with any number of suggestions about who might be included. And I, well, you know, that's a good one, I'd say, but, you know, I don't really see a democratic project attached to that. You know, a good one might be, you know, Andy Warhol and Basquiat uh, or uh, Pee Wee Reese and, and Jackie Robinson, you know. Uh, 
but you know maybe they were short lived or not quite you know fully uh, embracing of you know the political consequences uh, of meaning at the moment. Um, and, and frankly, there were other episodes that I knew better than others. So you have to play to your strengths. And as an author, you've got to know your strengths and weaknesses in terms of what your area of coverage is. But I think the Democratic Project was something that was really close to mind, top of mind for me, as I thought about these various cases. Certainly, I wanted an assemblage of cases that would speak to the breadth of the American experience and of uh, the experience of identity. And um, I also included uh, Marlon Brando and James Baldwin. Yes, an interracial friendship among men, but also men who were uh, either bisexual and or gay. Um, And I think that was an important element to speak to, as well as the relationships between black and white women critical to understanding how that dynamic has played out politically in American life as well as privately, uh, and the relationship between black men and white men. Um, And so I think having uh, as much of a mix as I could of these different um, elements or characteristics of friendship were certainly important to round out what I thought would make up uh, the most uh, realistic uh, telling of the story historically. And of course, again, some of this is uh, dictated by just history because we don't have a lot of 19th century cases involving women uh, as significant public figures, right? You really have to wait until the uh, mid 20th century or at least the 40s. And so uh, people like Mary McLeod Bethune as a black woman begins to, uh, you know, come uh, figure into things, at least for me, as uh, an example of FDR's black cabinet, uh, who uh, her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt is pretty profound on a private level, but also on a political and public level. And of all the friendships that you analyzed, which one did you find to some degree the most interesting, not necessarily complex, but the most interesting to sort of put in this analysis and, and framework and think about in context? Oh, I don't know. I think um, I'm struck by Baldwin and Brando's relationship because maybe because they're cultural figures and there's a certain kind of artistry to their lives that uh, magnifies, I think, the beauty of the relationship. I think it was pretty intimate. Um, and as many suggest, and as I allude to, is probably sexual as well. But I think that, you know, the intimacy there was so profound among those two men um, that one couldn't help be, but be struck by the beauty of it, but also the pain involved. You know, I found that wonderful letter. I'd never heard of it before, seen of it before, read of it anywhere, doing research at the new school where both Brando officially attended and Baldwin was kind of uh, sneaking in, you know, (laughs) sneaking into acting classes without paying. Uh, Shout out to to Baldwin for doing that that hard work. Um, But I was struck by the letter that that I opened the chapter with, with Baldwin, you know, pleading with Brando really in a very strategic way to um, take on a role that he has written for him, a screenplay, uh, you know, based on Baldwin's novel, Giovanni's Room. I was struck by how 
uh, Baldwin said, hey, you know, we've had a falling out. I'd like to see if it would be possible for us to be friends again, Marlon. Uh, you know, and, and he doesn't really get into what has happened. And I don't know if we'll ever know. And I kind of like that. I like the, the way in which there are certain elements of these relationships that are so deep and profound that we don't get to know it all. We just get to know uh, that it mattered to them. I'm struck by the beauty of it. And I, I dare say that um, part of the Madisonian failure, if you will, is that so much of the beauty attached, and I think McWilliams really honed in on this as a scholar and as an intellectual, so much of the beauty of Madison's system is attached to the system and institutions and processes rather than people and ideas and hearts and minds. And I think these relationships, in particular that one, remind us that there's a kind of love uh, that's a subtext to democratic life that has to be there. And we recognize it when we see the hate. We recognize it when we see the absence of love. We recognize it when we see the visceral, brutal faces at a place like Charlottesville over a few years ago. But we can also see it when there's love and admiration and profound respect and dignity shared between uh, friends. And that relationship just, you know, always makes me smile. Gives me hope. And I wanted to ask you about also two other artists that you you sort of pay a lot of attention to here in Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe, um, which is not oftentimes what we hear discussed with regard to either of these, you know, artistic and, and brilliant women um, is the, the relationship between the two of them. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of got to this friendship and and what you see in it? Well, you know, it was really funny because, you know, you couldn't help but do this research. And if you're typing anything about interracial friendship, you know, periodically on the Internet, you'd get bombarded by these photos and articles, uh, blogs about Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. And frankly, many of these uh, links, uh, as I allude to in the chapter, point to how Marilyn Monroe saved Ella Fitzgerald's career by standing up for her and threatening not to show up at the Hollywood club Macombo uh, back in the 1950s. And, you know, you start to dig into these articles and you, and what emerged to me was uh, something significant. And it's about the stories we tell about friendship and believe about them that reflect something not only about the friendship themselves, but in this case, and perhaps many others, about what we want to be true, not necessarily what is true. That relationship was was wonderful to write about, in part because Monroe does help Fitzgerald get into the Macombo, but for not, but not for the reasons that so many people on the internet believe. Fitzgerald had not been blacklisted, if you will, from um, attending the or performing at the Macombo because of her race. We had people like Eartha Kitt and others perform there. It was because she was not perceived as overly sensual or sexy. She did not fit the bill of, uh, you know, the kind of siren that would be desired uh, by Charlie Morrison and others who owned the Macombo and wanted, you know, lots of uh, attendees, you know, hooting and hollering at women as they performed. And Monroe used her, uh, you know, her prestige, her own sexuality and persona to say in so many words, hey, 
If you, if, if, if Ella's not good enough for you, neither am I. So it was less about race and some more about the sexualization of women and how black women could, uh, in certain instances, cross the line uh, of segregation into the white world, provided that they were able to titillate white men. And I thought that was an interesting story in and of itself. So Marilyn Monroe was indeed heroic, but I think maybe we were not so heroic in our analysis because we so wanted to believe a kind of narrative about interracial friendship uh, and missed, I think, an equally important one, which is Monroe as a, a benefactor, if you will, of Fitzgerald, but one who was attuned to how she was being um, shortchanged because of her appearance and her perceived lack of beauty. Really important story, and, and one that I think mattered in part because we still live with it. There it is on the internet, photos of the two of them and hundreds of stories. There was a play, God knows there was a play about it <laughs> uh, in, in London, uh, Ella and Marilyn, and you know, all of this, and yet a fundamental aspect of it was wrong, and um, but important nevertheless for different reasons. And, and I wanted to ask you next, about the relationship across not just um, race, but also across um, faith or faith traditions. This, you know, the relationship between Martin Luther King and Rabbi Joshua Herschel is as a more well-known story um, because there are so many pictures of the two of them together marching. Um, but this is also the story of um, Blacks and Jews. Um, and, and sort of two groups that are often othered, um, in, in many societies, uh, and, and their connection to one another in terms of the civil rights movement. How did this particular example, um, really reflect on what you're talking about with regard to the opening up of opportunities for modeling, um, interracial relationships? Well, look, we know that all faith traditions are, you know, are steeped on, on one level in either a kind of prophetic tradition, if I could put on my Cornell West hat here for a minute, or they're steeped in a kind of uh, legalistic, orthodox tradition that's structured and rooted in, you know, theology, a certain kind of theology. What strikes me, I think, about Heschel's relationship with King is that both men were attuned to a prophetic tradition. They both saw uh, their respective faiths as tied to something deeper, helping marginalized people be recognized. Uh, you know, look, as I point out in the chapter, uh, and as Susanna Heschel, Abraham uh, Heschel's daughter, pointed out to me when I interviewed her, there were... Uh, uh, segregated Jewish stores in in the South and in Selma that you know um, you know ones particular just as there were <laughs> Christian stores right <laughs> that were segregated. What made Heschel's connection to King so profound was uh, Jewishness was not just an identity marker for Heschel. It was a faith he believed he needed to live out prophetically to attach himself to the Old Testament tradition of breaking chains with Pharaoh, of, you know, uh, racism is evil. 
Uh, he says in Chicago, where King and he meet for the first time at a at a religious conference. And of course, we know for King, uh, take the example of Vietnam. Uh, many Christian churches, black and white, oppose his um, opposition to the war in Vietnam for many reasons. Uh, but King actually believes he needs to live out his faith, that he's not going to, you know, uh, contour or tailor his Christianity to what's politically popular. As he tells Clarence Jones, who was so gracious in speaking with me, uh, he was the author of the I Have a Dream speech and the initial author of what became the speech at Riverside Church, the one that King rejects. King says to Clarence Jones, Clarence, you know I can't say this. You know I have actual real beliefs about the Vietnam War. You need to bring me a speech that's critical of Vietnam. And Clarence Jones says, hey, man, I'm trying to protect you. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not just writing this speech for me. I'm writing it to protect you. King uh, commissions another speechwriter after that says, I love you, Clarence, but I, I got to go elsewhere because I'm living out my faith. I actually am beyond, you know, uh, the politics of Christianity. I'm somewhere else. Just as Heschel was beyond the politics of what it meant to be a Jew in some very limited identifying way. It had to be active. And there's a beauty to their relationship too, you know, and I interviewed Reverend Dick Fernandez, who lives in Philadelphia, we had a, he was very kind to me over the phone, gave me a lot of time. You know, he talked about how he would observe King and Heschel in meetings, and they would you know, kind of whisper with each other, and then they'd kind of just go off on their own, and you wouldn't see them for a long time. They just kind of, they liked each other. There was a real bond there, personally. You got the sense that that, too, was private and had its own kind of delicious personal quality that they just enjoyed each other's company and they joked with one another. Uh, as, as King says, Heschel, were you on one of those slave ships in the Middle Passage? You know, because he so understood the black experience, what it was to be in the inferno of blackness in America uh, for so many centuries, frankly. Uh, how did you get that wisdom, Heschel? Well, Heschel got that wisdom because he took his faith seriously. He delved into something more than just uh, Judaism as a kind of personal identifier. What does it mean to be a Jew prophetically? Profound experience. I loved uh, doing that research, and I was so grateful that uh, Susanna Heschel, who's a terrific scholar, and many people know um, in her own right, clearly was just so helpful to me in pointing me to some of the papers and ideas that affected her father's work throughout his life. And and that particular that particular chapter, you are you're also talking to people who were friends with these people, um, and in in you know or or children of had had close relationships to. So this concept of how the friendship worked, um, what its dynamics were, also comes through in your discussion there, um, which is really fascinating and and sort of jumps off the page in a way that, you know. You can get a lot of the information from letters to back and forth in archival research, but it's just a little bit different when you're able to talk about the friendships or the relationships directly. You know, I was so grateful for that and, and, and a moment of disappointment. I really wanted to interview Gloria Steinem and Angela Davis. 
and for different reasons, who knows? Uh, I, I was told by uh, one of Gloria Steinem's representatives that she understood the book was being written and was happy it was being written. Uh, I never heard from Angela Davis or any of her representatives. I did reach out, but I so would have loved to have spoken with both of them. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And when it does work out, uh, really all you have to do is just stay out of the way because so many of these people have really stories they've been dying to tell and have just been waiting to be asked. And, um, you know, it was that way with Reverend Fernandez. It was that way certainly with Clarence Jones and others who uh, just gave up their time graciously. And so the one friendship that I, you know, personally have observed as, as I think you have is the one between former president Barack Obama and current president Joe Biden. Um, And, and we saw it, you know, develop over the years. And obviously we don't know what went on behind closed doors necessarily, but you know, the point that you talk about that, that bestowal, of the Medal of Honor with highest um, whatever it was that Obama connected it to and and Biden sweeping, you know, I still think about it and it moves me. Um, and, and that relationship, again, is one of gen- across generations. They are, they are two men from different times and different experiences and not just their racial differences, but really different lived experiences. Um, can you talk a little bit about not only how you did the research for that chapter, um, but, you know, what what it says with regard to our current mm, racial dimensions in the United States, shall we say? Sure. Well, you know, um, I could not interview Barack Obama or Joe Biden, but, you know, I, I will, uh, f- for the paperback version, uh, gentlemen, if you're listening, I'm happy, I'm happy if you're listening to this podcast, you know how to get a hold of me at Rutgers. Uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, the memoirs, Obama's memoir, uh, Biden's biography, and and, and, and the, there are a number of biographies about both men out there, of course, and, if, you know, newspaper accounts of what was said and uh, about the two. But I also wanted to situate their relationship in the context of the prior, let's say, 40 or 50 years of presidential politics, where we have moments like Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan and their friendship, but a different kind of friendship. You know, Jordan is a fixer for Clinton. He's not forwarding a black agenda, if you will. Andy Young is with, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter, then there's a real friendship there that opens the door. And I kind of wanted to get into some of these other cases, Condi Rice and George W. Bush, and try to express why Biden and Obama's friendship was so significant. I think it had to do first with the fact that uh, we know it was genuine because initially they didn't like each other. And I think what's important about some of these stories is maybe all of them in a way are the disagreements that arise among friends or prospective friends. You know, I, I so often um, loathe the idea of friendship on the cheap, that somehow uh, even the suggestion uh, that maybe this book is uh, an homage to the idea that we can just friend our way out of white supremacy, you know, or, or you know, the, the, the kind of cheap way we think about friends on social media. No, uh, disagreement, maybe dislike even. I think Obama disliked Biden. That was pretty clear. But it wasn't an obstacle to getting to know him personally, certainly understanding his value politically, 
But when that line was crossed, as, as Danielle Allen says, once you talk to strangers and get to know them, all kinds of possibilities open up. As Gilroy said, once you uh, begin to engage in the politics of conviviality, you see people as full human beings. And once you journey out into the stars and shadows, as Twain reminds us in Huck Finn, you know, democracy no longer has to be on the run. It can be maybe fugitive for a time, but maybe it can anchor and find a place and find a home. Biden and Obama, to me, uh, exemplify, you know, the hope that all of us can have, that perhaps we can develop a relationship that emerges out of disagreement, maybe even dislike, but then it, something deeper happens. And you begin to see both of these individuals reflecting on family. And that was what really, I think, hooked it in for Obama. It's clear that Biden's love for his family, his concept of family, so deep and broad and, and real, not fake, uh, you know, as politicians often say, I mean, I want to take time to go with my family. No, Biden lived that. And of course, he's a man of sorrows, if I can employ that term. Biden, we know his history and the loss that he experienced as a young politician. Uh, these things meant something to Obama. And again, Biden's loyalty. You know, people ask, well, what's the, you know, why did black people vote for, for Biden uh, in droves in the primaries? What, what, was the, what was it that turned Biden ar uh, around, you know, in South Carolina? What's, I, we don't understand. It's because many of my progressive friends, let's be clear, uh, we're not pro-Biden people. Many on the left remain not pro-Biden people. What is it with black folks and Biden? Well, you know, for many years, black people have gone to work, sometimes in a position where they're the supervisor rather than being the ones being supervised. And they've seen how on occasion, uh, white subordinates have kneecapped them, have talked behind their back, have you know, tried to uh, take their place uh, as the OJs in their beautiful song Backstabbers <laughs> have often written about or, or sung about over the years. You know, and here was Biden being loyal to Obama. Here was Biden, you know, never conveying any sense of disloyalty. And you know what? Black people looked at that and I think still look at that and have profound respect for that kind of person. Uh, that he never shortchanged Obama a whit, had his back, and I think Obama appreciated that. And that's a kind of turning point in American political history, where Obama can be free to be the one to be uh, the giver of gifts, as you know, uh, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune received FDR's walking cane after he passed away and Eleanor Roosevelt gave it to her. Or after Lincoln's assassination, Frederick Douglass gets something in the mail. He gets a package. Maybe it was sent FedEx. He gets a wonderful package. And what is it? It's, it's Lincoln's walking cane, his walking stick sent by Mary Todd Lincoln. These gifts are touchstones of the profundity of the relationship. And here we have a moment in American history where a black man, the president of the United States, can give a gift of his own. He's not the recipient of a cane. He's the giver of a different kind of gift. And it marks a turning point. And yes, it's always vulnerable. And as we saw with Trump, 
soon cheapened and soon watered down beyond all recognition, but it doesn't mean it can't be restored. And I hope that as readers think about their own individual relationships, ultimately that's going to be what I hope um, you know, becomes a kind of legacy of the book, whomever it reaches, that we reflect on our own relationships and try to f- do better by ourselves and those we call our friends. And so with that coda, <laughs> what are you working on now, Saladin? Well, I'm speaking of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I've just written the first pages of an introduction that I hope will become a good book uh, about Abraham Lincoln's early political thought, um, centered around his Lyceum address, but really about the 1830s in America and what Lincoln saw that terrified him about that period of time, despite the fact that so many people um, historically have viewed the 1830s as a period of great democratic expansion. And to an extent, that's true. But Lincoln saw some things happening in the country that gave him great concern. And I want to dig into what kind of created a uh, prophetic sorrow in Lincoln in that Lyceum address and in his early political thought uh, that was of consequence for him going forward. So that's what I'm working on now, a little bit of early Abraham Lincoln political thought that I hope will sometime in the future become a book. Well, I look forward to reading it and talking to you about it. Um, the Lyceum address is definitely one of my favorites. Um, and I'm it glad is, to hear that. It, it is profound and eloquent and important, I think. Um, but I'll let you talk about it in your book and talk to you about that then. Um, I'd like to thank Saladin Anbar for joining me today to talk about Stars and Shadows, uh, the politics of interracial friendship from Jefferson to Obama, available, I assume, at Oxford University Press website, published in 2022, and at independent booksellers wherever you find them. Is there a brick-and-mortar store in New Jersey that you want to give a shout-out to? Sure. Uh, Labyrinth Books in Princeton is a great place. Um, Headhouse Books in Philadelphia is a wonderful place. Um, there are lots of great independent bookstores, and I would encourage readers to uh, to ask them for the book. And uh, hopefully I'll be talking at Labyrinth in the fall. That would be nice. But uh, whether I, I do or not, uh, it's a great local bookstore. But there are so many, and Headhouse has been um, a kind place for writers over the years over there in Old City in Philadelphia. So wherever you live, check it out. Yep. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lily. Always great to see you.